0: We are the descendants of 40 million people who left other countries, other familiar scenes, to come here to the United States to build a new life. I think it is not a burden, but a privilege.
1: Welcome to Statutes of Liberty, an immigration podcast brought to you by Clasco Immigration Law Partners.
0: Welcome to episode 13 of the Statutes of Liberty podcast. I'm Bill Stock, one of the partners here at Classical Immigration Law. I'm here with my partner, Michelle Madera. Hello, Michelle. Hi, Bill. And Lisa <laughs> Felix, one of our associates. Hello. And we're here for part two of our discussion of side hustles and entrepreneurs uh, and the immigration system. When we're talking uh, about entrepreneurs, previously we talked about the folks who wanted to work incidental to their immigration status, but now we want to talk about people who are looking to create something new here in the country, uh, who are looking to maybe found a company or be part of a startup organization. The fundamental dilemma that you're going to have to deal with is that you have the need to be sponsored by an employer. uh, And as the startup founder, You have to create a company which will become in a position to uh, sponsor you. So there's kind of a chicken and an egg problem where uh, which comes first, uh, creating the company or getting permission to work so that you can create the company. And so it's helpful to think about in the context of this what we talked about during our last podcast podcast sort of what is work and what isn't, uh, with a particular focus on entrepreneurs. So if you think about Mark Zuckerberg and founding Facebook when it was just an idea in his head in his dorm room uh, in Harvard, at that point, uh, thinking about wouldn't it be interesting to start a new website where people could connect with each other uh, wasn't really work. It was just an idea that he had. Uh, And of course, he then went on to begin to code this project and then to begin to put the corporate infrastructure in place to have collaborators uh, to begin to work on it uh, almost full time. At some point along that process, he really was engaging in employment on behalf of this new organization that he was creating. So as an entrepreneur, you're often going to have to uh, do activities such as beginning to uh, meet with investors or or look for a place for your business to be uh, in advance of having the permission to do that. And so I think it's important to understand that, you know, as much as possible, you want to have a type of visa which allows you to do that kind of activity, which isn't really very clearly regulated under immigration law. It's in this gray area. And that as soon as possible, you're going to want to get a visa which does allow you to work. Now, before we go into some of the more exotic things that are going to apply to uh, most people, let's talk about... uh, kind of the few visas that there are which really are designed for a startup situation. Uh, So, Lisa, one of those is the e-visa for treaties that we have with other countries. There are three kinds. Do you want to uh, talk us through what, what are they?
2: Yeah, um, thanks, Bill. When we talk about e visas for entrepreneurs, we're referring to E1 and E2 visas. There's a third kind of e visa, which is E3, uh, but that's an employer sponsored visa and it's only for Australians. So the visas that I'd like to talk about um, that are designed for entrepreneurial activity are E1 and E2.
0: So what is the, uh, the E-1 and E-2 visa specifically?
2: So the E-1 is called a treaty trader visa, and it's aimed at entrepreneurs from a treaty country who are going to start up or take over a business that conducts substantial trade between the U.S. and the treaty country. The E-2 visa is called a Treaty Investor Visa, and that's aimed at entrepreneurs from a treaty country who invest. it's aimed at an entrepreneur from a treaty country who invests a substantial amount in a business in the U.S. and who is going to develop and direct that business.
0: So the first thing it sounds like we need to understand is what is a treaty country?
2: So the treaties that are the basis for the E-1 and the E-2 are called Treaties of Friendship, Commerce, and Navigation that the U.S. has specifically negotiated with various countries. Now, many countries have these kinds of treaties with the U.S., but not all countries. So to find out if your country has such a treaty, you can review the Treaty Countries list on the U.S. State Department website. Some of these treaties go back all the way to the 1800s and others are still being created and modified. So as an example, uh, I looked up that Israel has a treaty with the U.S. that covered E-1 visas, but not E-2. And now starting um, May 1st of this year, the U.S.-Israel treaty has been renegotiated and will cover E-2 visas as well.
0: Now, uh, it sounds like your new business is going to have to conduct substantial trade. Uh, do you know what? Uh, how we would define that?
2: Yeah, substantial is not specifically defined in the regulations, and so it's relative to the kind of business. Um, so the challenge is... Uh, showing what kind of business you're going to have and then demonstrating the amount of trade or the amount of investment that, it, that you're going to do in that company. And so it's very situation-specific. So to be substantial for a small restaurant, for example, would be very different than a substantial investment required for a manufacturing company or something like that.
0: Right, so you're going to be looking at some kind of business plan as to how this investment is going to get you started up and and doing your business uh, in in the country uh, here in the United States.
2: Yeah, that's right, and. To prepare the uh, petition for the e-visas, you have to gather all sorts of kinds of specific data and um, plans and documentation and evidence about your actual business. Um, so the the documentation should needs to be done in advance, and it needs to be that also needs to be substantial.
0: It's true, and it it probably goes without saying that it's a good idea if you're having an idea for starting up a business that you talk with a lawyer earlier on in this process so that you can get some feedback about whether your business plans are going to fit into the E1 or E2 model uh, as we go forward or whether there might need to be other options for your visa. Now, in terms of visas that are specifically designed for starting up, I think the only other one is is the L visa. There's a, sort of a new office L. Can you talk to me, Lisa, about what that is?
2: Yep. The new office L is a little bit different from the L that you might be familiar with for um, intra-company transferees that already are employees of perhaps a big international company. The new office L is specifically designed for when a company in another country that's been operating for at least a year could be your own company um, or a small company when that company is going to open uh, a branch or a, a subsidiary or something like that in the U.S. So the U.S. office has to be the new extension of an overseas company. And like I said, the company should... Be operating overseas for at least a year and the person coming to the US uh, needs to be an executive or a manager and um, needs to have been working for the overseas company for at least a year and it's okay if it's just a small enterprise and maybe you are the person who's coming to the US but you also own the company that's that's okay
0: Right. So the key there is if you're looking to start up a business in the U.S., you might actually have to go back to your country for a year. That's not going to work for a lot of folks. So let's talk about some of the visas that maybe aren't designed for startups, but that might be used for startups. Uh, you know, One of the E-treaties is the North American Free Trade Agreement, so Canadians and Mexicans can get an E-visa under that, but they also have a professional-level visa, right? Michelle, how would you use a TN in a startup situation?
1: Yeah, so the TN is um, based on our NAFTA agreement with Canada and Mexico. So. Um, you have to be a citizen of one of those countries to benefit from that. And it is um, employer sponsored. So you will have to have the company that you are starting up sponsor you for that um, that type of status in the US. It would be a little bit tricky to use because only certain occupations qualify for the TN. So you'd have to work with your attorney to make sure that whatever your function will be within your startup, um, or your new company you'd be you'd be fitting into one of those categories. So there's no kind of director level or c-suite level category under the TN but if you're you know working in a, on a more functional level like as an engineer, um, engineering some kind of application or something like that, we might be able to fit you in the in under the TN in a different kind of category. Um, so that's just something to, to be mindful of if, if you're considering the TN for for your startup.
0: Well, it's not real flexible in terms of the kinds of occupations. You have to be in one of the occupations on the list. It is a little more flexible in terms of the kinds of employment relationships you can have. So it is possible to be a consultant and be sponsored uh, essentially by your customers. Uh, But you cannot do self-employment on the TN. Uh, It certainly makes that less than ideal. Uh, So, Michelle, a lot of the people who are listening to the podcast are going to be here on F1 student visas. What are some of the options we've seen entrepreneurial students using?
1: Sure. So there's there's a few different options for um, students who are entrepreneurs. So there might be a course that's available to them as part of their curriculum that might allow them to pursue their entrepreneurial goals. For instance, a course called, you know, Entrepreneurial Studies where you're supposed to develop an application or a product that you want to market um, and move that forward as part of your course. That would certainly be acceptable as your student status because it's, it is it is tied to your student status and your coursework in advancing your degree um, in the United States. Um, There is also the option of optional practical training which um, you could do pre-completion or post-completion of your degree um, and you can be self-employed in that, so that is certainly um, an option for entrepreneurs, and that would be available for one year. So it's important that you, you know, speak to counsel about what your goals are um, within that one year, so you can then flip over to another status that would allow you to keep working in the United States and pursuing your goals even further. Um, I will note that if you are um, eligible for a STEM OPT, which is for certain um, fields like engineering, science, math, um, then you are eligible for extra time on your OPT, but unfortunately, you cannot be self-employed during that time, so um, you wouldn't be able to keep working for your own company during that period.
0: All right. And uh, in addition, then, to the student visa, one of the more exotic options that we sometimes pursue is an O one one visa. Uh, Lisa, what... Are you going to need if you're thinking about an O-1 visa?
2: The O-1 visa is uh, called uh, a visa for individuals with extraordinary ability. So to qualify for that, you need to be able to gather enough evidence to satisfy the USCIS of your extraordinary ability. Now it allows uh, work in the sciences, art education, business, or athletics. So while uh, you can have a managerial role in your company, and if your focus is business, you might um, have an ownership role or um, it be part of your entrepreneurial activities. The O1 is going to focus on your expertise in, and your documented ability in sciences, art, education, business, or athletics.
0: Now, is it true that you cannot be self-sponsored as an O? Uh,
2: I would say that that's not exactly true. if you're going to be presenting yourself as an employee of the company then you have to have a way to demonstrate that somehow there's somebody controlling and directing your work and i think michelle's going to talk about this a little bit more with the h1 visas but there's also special to the o1 visa there's what's called the agent rule where you can uh... structure your activity in such a way that it's coordinated by a central agent but done on behalf of different uh projects, different activities, um, things which are not quite the same as uh, being sponsored by one particular company. So um, creative use of the agent rule might be just the thing.
0: Now we've gone through our alphabet of uh, temporary visas available in uh, sort of a weird order, but I think uh, let's finish up with the H visa, the professional working visa that's in some ways most applicable because it allows professional employment in all kinds of different occupations. But, but uh, Michelle, it, it has some particular challenges when we're going to use it uh, in an entrepreneurial context, right?
1: Yes, of course. So, um, and if you listen to our side hustle visa, you might recall that the H visa is employer and position specific. Um, so, it's going to be hard for any startup or entrepreneur to demonstrate that, They have an employer-employee relationship with the company that is sponsoring them, especially because it's usually their company. So um, We would have to be able to prove that that employer actually does have control over the employee as opposed to that um, entrepreneur having control over the company. Um, And how we would go about doing that is, you know, and this is always hard for entrepreneurs, but to pull some of that control back, maybe um, instill a board of directors that really has oversight of the entrepreneur um, or consider what the entrepreneur is really doing. Are they really a C-suite executive or are they really kind of doing the hands-on application development or um, a function within their new company um, and leaving the management of the company to a manager or a director or a CEO Um, other challenges are always related to salary Um, as as you also may recall um, the salary has to be at least what's called the prevailing wage which is determined um, based on the county and the job that the person is doing that's always tricky for startups because a lot of times you're taking stock options and maybe a very minimal wage level um, as an entrepreneur. And um, unfortunately, the the H-1B requires that prevailing wage, so you'd have to be paid at least that prevailing wage. This is also where it may come into play that it makes more sense to be um, a functional uh, role within the company as opposed to a C-suite level because CEOs in certain locations are making a lot of money and the prevailing wages are very, very high, whereas an application developer or a business operations manager or um, a different role might, might require uh, less of a prevailing wage. So again, it's really looking at those core job duties and, and seeing how those are going to fit with, um, within the H-1B. It's also always important to consider that startups um, require everybody to do a little bit of everything, right? It's always a little hectic when a company's just getting started and everybody's chipping into lots of different roles. but the H1B is position specific and it doesn't, it has to be professional level job duties, which means that the degree has to be related to what the du- is, person is doing, and the degree has to be required for the role. So if the role is gonna require a lot of administrative duties, it might be important that the company, um, you know, hire an administrative assistant or an operations assistant who can kind of manage those day to day administrative functions, freeing up the entrepreneur for the higher level duties, um, the more professional level tasks for that H-1B visa.
0: Great. Thanks very much. Now, longer term, uh, and and once the business has become successful, of course, whatever temporary visa we have, we're eventually going to get tired of that, uh, and we want to think about moving on to the green card. Uh, Lisa, can you talk us through... Uh, mm-hmm. First off, can uh, an employer, uh, if if a person founds a company and is the founder of it, can they do the labor certification, the normal green card process for employment?
2: Well, no. um, You're not allowed to own the company that sponsors a labor certification um, or have a a substantial ownership in it. Um, We have situations where employees have stock options and a very, very, very minute Uh, technical ownership in the company, that probably wouldn't cause a problem, Um, but uh, if you're one of the main owners of the company, that uh, company cannot sponsor
0: you for a labor certification. So how would you get around that if you wanted to get a green card?
2: Uh, well, there are some other kinds of green cards uh, that uh, we look at that are called, we call them self sponsored green cards, where um, you don't need a company or it might not be based on a specific job opportunity. Um, the one that I like the most is called the National Interest Waiver. And what that's waiving is the job offer requirement. And so it's designed to be uh, available for someone to sponsor them themselves for permanent resident, and the work uh, that you're proposing to do needs to be in the national interest of the United States. And so if you can show that your work is going to be in the national interest of the United States, you can waive the requirement of a job offer or a labor certification. Um, The other couple of nice things about the National Interest Waiver, first of all, like I mentioned, it's self-sponsored. Second of all, it's based on prospective benefit to the U.S. Um, So it can be um, based on your ideas for the future. You do have to have some evidence that you're well-positioned to accomplish those. And um, perhaps, uh, for example, if you were working on um, developing a startup and you've got some Uh, some things in place for the business but not yet uh, fully functional, the National Interest Waiver would look at what your future of the business plan is going to be and what future benefit it's going to bring to the U.S., Lastly, the precedent decision that set the criteria for the National Interest Waiver Decisions specifically mentioned entrepreneurs as benefiting the United States. Um, In that way, it's focused on perhaps job creation. It could be focused on uh, the contributions that your business will make, you know, if you're um, working in uh, maybe... a uh, scientific area, or um, engineering, or environment, you can show a very clear connection between what your company will do and benefiting the U.S. And um, so, what's nice about that is that the uh, you know the the decision that set it up set up the criteria for the national interest waiver specifically mentioned entrepreneurship, and we would use that as extra support that even if your company isn't. Um, a fully functioning company, prospectively, you should uh, benefit the U.S. and qualify for the green card.
0: Great, well, so that uh, sort of wraps up our tour of different options that entrepreneurs can use. Uh, Again, in most of these situations, the cycle is gonna be roughly the same. You're gonna have the idea, you're gonna be looking to make your start in the U.S., you're gonna be looking to limit your activities uh, to those which are essential to getting the business up and running, until you actually have permission to work for the business. If you're an F1, for example, you're going to be looking to get your business in a substantial enough position that it can sponsor you for an H1 before your OPT runs out. If you're visiting the U.S. looking to start up a business uh, on an E or an L, you're going to have to set up that business while you're just visiting uh, in a way that's not employment. But ultimately, uh, those businesses then have to grow to the point where they can sponsor you for permanent residence if you want to be able to stay in the United States. Uh, there is. Uh, I should mention, of course, also there is the investor-based green card application uh, that represents at least a half a million dollar investment, uh, a million dollars in in most areas of the country. So that may be out of reach of a lot of entrepreneurs early on uh, in their uh, in their career. So some of these smaller options that really, I think, building a strategy that that goes step by step. From more temporary visas to more permanent visas uh, is really the best way to think about it with entrepreneurs. And of course, the final thing uh, that really is critical is the success of the business is going to determine the success of your immigration. So it's really critical at the outset to have a good business plan and to have a real strong sense that this business will be successful. So thanks to Michelle, uh, thanks to Lisa for joining me, Uh, thanks to you for listening, and please join us next time on Statutes of Liberty.
1: For more information, visit us at classicallaw.com. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You can email your immigration questions to podcast at classicallaw.com. Podcast does not constitute direct legal advice and is for informational purposes only. An attorney client relationship is not presumed or intended by receipt or review of this presentation. The information provided should never replace informed counsel when specific immigration related guidance is needed.